to the open side. Karim Bete. Hufflegal here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Good evening and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby. We're the people's podcast, providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm Ando, with me is Mitch and Lockie. Mitch, um, I need to confront you about something, mate. It might be a little secret shame of yours, I don't know, or a guilty pleasure. Uh, I saw that you've been playing a lot of farming simulator recently. Talk to me about that one, mate. Are you okay? Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, I would love to be playing Rugby 24 right about now. And that was due to be dropped right before the World Cup started. But the world of rugby gaming is just not currently at a priority, unfortunately. And so it was pushed back until the start of 2024. And if that was out, I'm sure I'd be sinking hours and hours into that. And with Australia doing so badly in the World Cup, I need to find some outlet to let the frustration out. And farming seems to be it. (laughs) Well, mate, how bad is it that we have not had a good rugby game since what rugby 08 Lockie, i'm pretty sure you sunk a lot of hours into that mate i'm still sinking hours and i pulled it out after <laughs> we got um, bounced in the pool stages and recreated the 07 campaign except we actually won um <laughs> so there's a bit, a bit a bit of love there through the through the thumbs for um a couple of old heads in there i think the team's mostly uh was it lottie gregan larkham Lockie Elsom at six. Like, there's some great names in there. Um, a lot of vicarious, vicarious awaiting. And I might have, I might have got a bit angry at um, Wales and um, try to give him a touch-up or two. But it's good therapy. I'll give it that. Yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. Well, we have a lot to get through, a bit of therapy. I don't know why we're doing this to ourselves. Australia's not even in a Rugby World Cup anymore, but we're still going through the semis, and then we'll go through the final as well. Um, we also have an opportunity to talk through the WXV, the women's comp, which has kicked off, and the Wallaroos' performance against England, the Red Roses, as well as the upset of France versus New Zealand as well within a women's comp. So there's a lot to get through. But Mitch, before we kind of kick off into the matches, can you take us through the tipping, please? Well, well done to Kakadu, who's in first place on 482 points. We've had a change in second and third. So Felix Nine is up in a second on 445 points. He's taken over Ore Lieb, uh, who's on 442. So three points in that neck and neck, the second and third there. Two games left in the tournament. Let's see if there can be enough uh, picks or upsets even for second place to catch up to to first. There's there's a bit of a gap there, but uh, well done to all of those. I've gone up a place too. I'm in into 19, so I'm Ooh. still on that, that one page I'm pretty happy with. What, what are you, how are you boys going with it? Uh, really no bad comment. connection. Really, really bad yeah. connection. Yeah, yeah. Can't, that's what I thought. Can't hear. Can't hear. Moving on to the games. Moving on to the games. Um, we're going to jump in straight away into the first semi-final, which was played on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And it was a comprehensive beat down by New Zealand versus Argentina, 6 to 44. I don't think anybody was really surprised by the team that went through it in the end, but Lockie, surely we weren't expecting a 30, what is it, 38 point margin for this game. That was a proper final spanking, and and I, it was almost inevitable to my mind. But after the fact, I think from the preparation and the lead in that the All Blacks had, having their loss against France and then building really nicely through the campaign, as opposed to Argentina really 
flying by the seat of their pants with that last gasp win in the pool stage to get them there. Um, you saw the way they celebrated after beating Wales in the quarters. That was their final. And they mm. just could not back up emotionally. You thought maybe there's a chance as they held on, I think it was 12 to 6, almost heading into half time before that hammer blow. Um, the you know typical frustrating Kiwi thing of scoring in those championship minutes or rah, rah, rah. But um, the second half was just a walk in the park. And I know we're going to talk about him, but your man, Will Jordan, is a hot boy with rocket legs. And he <laughs> was exceptional again. That try scoring record at a World Cup is almost certainly going to be his if he can play his cards right next weekend. Mate, I'm just incredibly excited. He is my New Zealand fanboy crush, okay? So I'm I'm well known for my Australian rugby crushes. Ryan Wanigan and Ned Hannigan are definitely up there. Ryan Lawrence is creeping up there with his biceps particularly, but Will Jordan, just everything that man touches turns to gold, and he must have had a word. He said in a post-match press conference that he didn't say anything to Richie Mwanga for not giving him that 79th minute pass out wide to beat the all-time try-scoring record for a single Rugby World Cup. He's currently equal with um, Jonah Lomu, Brian Habana and Julian Savea as the three who have scored eight tries at a single World Cup. But um, Mitch, I've got a bit of a test for you, mate. And if you can't get these answers, I'm going to then throw it over to Lockie, okay? So it's an impromptu quiz. Who are the two players who have scored hat-tricks in semi-finals of the Rugby World Cup, aside from Will Jordan? Uh, Jonah Lomu and Brian Habana. The first one is correct. Any idea which match? Or are you just stabbing a dark that it was Jonah Lomu? Jonah Lomu, 2000 and... Nope. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well done. You got Jonah Lomu and Lockie, over to you. Jonah would have been 95 against England. And the other is Adam Ashley Cooper in 2015. And how many tries did they each get? So obviously they a minimum got a hat trick, but one of them got more. Oh, I think Jonah got... Did Jonah get four? He did. Well done, Lockie. Get the biggies. Well done, well done, well done. <laughs> so this Biggie was a score. record, record um, equaling achievement here from Will Jordan. And the f- halftime result of 20 to 6 was only bettered by the second half result of 22 to 0. And it just showed the absolute dominance that New Zealand had throughout this game. Now, I have written down on my notes... Argentina showing next to nothing at halftime, and I've underlined next to nothing multiple, multiple times. Mitch, is that a bit harsh? How do you how do you think that comment stands up with a bit of retrospective thought? Yeah, look, I think on the outset, yeah, pretty harsh. I think Argentina, up until maybe the thirty eighth minute, I thought were doing quite well. Uh, they didn't look like scoring a lot of points in this game, but I think that they were at least hanging with the All Blacks and. And as Lockie did say earlier, the, the championship minutes, which is the sort of five minutes before halftime and after halftime, is when the All Blacks do are at their most dangerous. And that's what they did this week. I think if Argentina had kept them out in the leading into halftime and had managed to get their hands on the ball and kicked it out, then they're probably going into halftime with a little bit more pep in their step. Conceding that try, I think when they came out in the second half, they did look a bit flat. I, um, I thought there was a few harsh calls personally against Argentina in that first half. I thought some of the 50-50 calls were definitely going New Zealand's way. And you could tell that Argentina themselves were getting quite frustrated with the way that some of the elements of the game were being refereed. 
uh, but they didn't have the leadership to sort of calm things down and to readjust and to to sort of go again where New Zealand definitely did. It seemed that Argentina were missing kind of the charisma and the leadership of players like Pablo Matera particularly. I thought that their forward pack, whilst willing, really lacked any incisive edge when they were attacking. And there was just some just some moments where New Zealand were doing their typical bloody smart thing. So in like the second minute of the game, um, the Argentinians are doing pretty well, recycling the ball, hitting it up, making meters in the attack and uh, getting some good phase play going. And then they get a penalty before, I think it was Scott Barrett, then kills the ball at the next ruck and Argentina then decides to take the kick and get the three points. But it was a deliberate play by Scott Barrett to just kill the kill the ball and not let a try scoring opportunity eventuate because he already knew that Argentina had the advantage. And it happened again. It happened again in their their thirty fifth or so minute penalty, the the one that got them to six points. This time it was Jordy Barrett not rolling when Argentina had the penalty advantage. And it's just this smart moment by New Zealand where they're like, "Well, the other team's got the advantage. We don't want to score seven points. Let's make them." make a decision here. Are they going to risk the seven or take the easy three? And it's basically a four-point gain for the Kiwis each time, and it means that it just heaps pressure onto the Argies. Lockie, what do you think went so well for New Zealand and so poorly for Argentina throughout this game? Well, they played the ref, for starters. Like They, they adjusted to how Angus Gardner was officiating, and like you mentioned, they're making cynical attempts um, when against the advantage. So when the Pumas are under advantage, so they kill that ball and they shut down that instantly. That there wasn't further repercussion from Gardner for that kind of cynicism um, when mm. on the defensive back foot. So you play that. That's the referee's call, and you play it. It's not a knock on Gardner, but the All Blacks just played him the way that he was refereeing. So yep. credit to them. And I think you're right about lacking that edge with Matera in attack. Defensively, you've got a really strong back row. You've got, obviously, Kramer there, Issa. Um, but they really lack the punch of Matera, particularly outside the 10 channel. You so often yep. see um, from first phase, from a line-out, Matera running that hard unders line off 10, whether it's Sanchez, whether it's um, Carreras. And they just didn't have that edge. I didn't see anyone in that pack that looked like breaking the game open for them. And, uh, and that's where the, the all-black back row, and this is what I really put it down to, the all-black back row was dominant in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. Like, obviously, beginnings from Sam Kane last week, Artie played really well. But some of the numbers out of that back row from this week yep. are biblical. Artie had 24 carries, 19 tackles, and eight tackle busts by himself. That's outrageous. Um, Shannon Frizzell carried 18 times, made 17 tackles. Kane carried nine times, 14 tackles, plus two turnovers. Those are big, big numbers coming out of just three men in the back row. And they were the defining factor. There was no real on-ball presence um, from Los Pumas. And as a result, they just ran riot. I've got to completely agree. I mean, Adi Savea, I've been talking him up the last couple of weeks. He is just, the, might well be the form back row of the whole competition and world rugby at the moment. He is everything he's touching. He's he's eating angry biscuits or something like that before he goes into the match because he's just throwing players left, right and centre. There was one moment right near the end of the game where 
the felly was kind of like over a rock protecting it. And Savir just gets him by the shirt and flips and throws him away. And they start scuffling as the ball rolls away. And he just manhandled him. Like, Buffelli's not a small back, and he just got absolutely manhandled. Um, there were some really, really impressive performances throughout. I've mentioned Savea. Um, Mitch, who are a couple of other players from Argentina or New Zealand that stood out to you? Yeah, I think uh, Richie Mwanga had one of his best games uh, for a while, and definitely of this tournament, I think at 10. Uh, Will Jordan was on fire, scoring all those tries, and I would not be surprised if come Tuesday when it's first contact session of the week, if Jordan lines up Mwanga and just lays the shoulder in for not feeding him that that ball for the, the record. <laughs> but um, I think he was a key uh, determining player for the All Blacks and was very much outclassing most of the players in the Argentinian backline. Lockie, players. Oh, I've got to throw in Mark Talaya. Um, yeah. It's hard when you've got such a dearth of riches in your outside backs. We saw Fanganuku carve up last week. Obviously, Jordan's been outstanding. They've still got people like Caleb Clark, who's on the outer. Harvilli and Leonard Brown can't get a run, who cover you know, more of the outside centre roles. Um, but Talea was untackleable. I don't even know yep. if that's a word, but he was. 14 tackle busts. He looked like he was a pinball bouncing around through there. And I haven't seen someone convert their super rugby form to their test form so quickly, except for maybe his wing partner, Will Jordan. So that's yeah. a that's a terrifying wing combo. And especially when you put it in the frame of who they'll be up against next week in the spring box, that the size mismatch is going to be really interesting to see between the the little whippets in you know, Adamsa and Colby up against two of the biggest, most powerful and explosive wingers we've seen in a while in um, Jordan and Talaya. It's absolutely exciting, isn't it? And there's just so many mouth-watering matchups, but we're going to get to a bit of a preview for that game soon. Uh, one point on Talaya, that try that he essentially scored himself, but just didn't get to the line. He picks the ball up at the back of a ruck, what, like 20 metres out, and then manages to duck and weave and dodge through about, what, five or six? He probably broke five or six tackle busts in that one run, which then set up Shannon Frizzell, I think, for the resulting try. Um, he is just on another level at the moment. And whilst a part of me wants to know what he did to not get picked last week, um, it was nice to just see that he has been able to come back into things pretty well, well, more than pretty well, without uh, missing a beat. Um, anything else we want to touch on this game? I'll quickly say that well done, New Zealand. They're the first team to ever reach Rugby World Cup finals. And then Mitch, back to you. I was going to say, we can't go much further without um, congratulating the performance that was Matteo Carreras for Argentina. I thought even mm. in a team that was severely outplayed by, Argent uh, by New Zealand, particularly in that second half, he was still consistently making metres with ball in hand. He made 132 metres uh, carried with, with the ball in hand for a team that was with the possession stats was so low with the amount of time and, and space they had in the opposition 22. Every time he touched the ball, even in the 75th, 80th minute, he looked like he was giving it 100%. So he's a player on the rise, really looking forward to seeing how he goes uh, over the next few years. Definitely a player that's standing up for Argentina uh, and yeah, unfortunately it would have been nice to see some of the other backs have as much of an impact as he did because even when he got the ball, he was making meters, but not everyone else in that back line was. 
Yeah, and you bang on, Mitch, because Carreras has been a standout all tournament, actually. When you look through to see who have been their game breakers, it's either been Boff with the boot or it's been maybe Thomas Gayo up front, who's just a big barrel of a man that I love watching play, or it's been Carreras, who carved up on the seven series as well, and he's been as good. I think I, I want to say that he's the younger brother of Santi Carreras, who plays 10. I want to double-check that one. But he's got really good combinations with him back on the inside, and he's been electric on that wing all tournament. So that's a great pick. Final one on Will Jordan, though. Did you fellas see that he, he was so good during that game that he got drug tested that yes. later that evening? <laughs> he yep. got pulled aside. They pulled him. In. He had a quick interview afterwards, and he said, "Yep, straight away for a drug test." And you can believe it after busting out a performance like that. He's like some kind of unholy blend of Ben Smith and Christian Cullen. He's always in the right place at the right time, but he's just got that ridiculous pace and skill set that Cullen used to have. It's really unfair that he's not Australian. <laughs> one so of the got really Australian interesting stats somewhere. Pro- I, I wish, I wish. One of the most interesting stats that comes out of the game, which I, I want to mention now before we then move into the England South Africa match, is um, Argentina's red zone efficiency. So the amount of points they're able to get per entry into the uh, red zone of the other team um, was zero point six seven to New Zealand's four point four zero, which is the best of any team across the Rugby World Cup. So that was absolutely impressive. And then jumping into England versus South Africa. This was an absolute nail-biter. Now, Mitch, you're here in your South African jersey. Now, um, <laughs> I absolutely love the meme, which is there. Um, so this is a quote from Razzie Erasmus. I uh, haven't been this nervous about a semi since I watched Brokeback Mountain. Um, don't believe everything you read on the internet or hear on podcast, team. That's all I'll say about that disclaimer. Um, but... <laughs> It was an absolute nail-biter. Mitch, your South African uh, friends and family, how were they after this game? Oh, pretty confident, I must say. Uh, I received a few messages today saying it was never in doubt that uh, South Africa looked composed all the way through this game and it, it was only a matter of time before they did get uh, in in an, in the lead and, and they're not surprised that they did come away with the victory. So I've, um, I've put my South African jersey on tonight and, I mean, I tipped them and I got pretty close to the margin that I tipped with. So I'm also going to go never in doubt and, and take that for a chance, for a change. Look, anybody claiming that South Africa were comfortable throughout this game did not watch this game. They were poor for large parts of the match mm. and England put so much pressure on them and were able to force so many mistakes. And dear God, they slowed this game down so much there was 11.5 minutes less ball in play time, 32 minutes versus the 43 and a half for New Zealand versus Argentina. It was one of the slowest games of rugby. I'm surprised it was that high. Tossed. I'm actually yeah, surprised it was too. that high. It felt like the ball was in play for yeah. about 30, 40 seconds before someone went down with a cramp. Like it just never yeah, seemed, and, and this the, game never seemed to get going. The water carriers would come on, the physios, or the team doctors would come on. And Ben O'Keefe was trying to get them to get off the field. I think that needs to be something watched for next week. But Lockie, I mean, do you agree? There was a point that he did say, and uh, not to discredit his reputation at all in, in the way that he handled this match, but there was about three instances that I heard him speak to the captains and said, look, guys, this game is too slow. 
I'm going to have to start penalizing the next player that goes down and takes an extended break. But it happened again and it happened again. Like he kept threatening to do something, but he never did. And so England's just kept on doing it. And then South Africa started to do it as well. And it just never felt like the game was going to pick back up. And Lucky, what was the impact of that, mate? Well, the impact was that two things. It was a terrible game of rugby that I suffered through this morning. I took absolutely no pleasure in how slow that was. I was invested in the sense that I thought England might be able to pull something out of the um, out of the back end of it. But that was a genuinely dreadful game because of how well managed it was, first by England, um, and then in those sort of last five minutes as they started gaining parity by South Africa. Those, those medics were on mopeds. You mentioned the water guys, but yeah, people were flying out at every possible opportunity. And what it did for my mind was totally... Uh, tarnish what rugby is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about, you know, fairness, equity, uh, uh, balanced and open conversation to the referee about what needs to be done and just good sportsmanship. I saw none of that for the vast majority of this game from both sides who are willfully slowing down play to suit their stodgy style. Yes, it's in the rain. Yes, there's game management and a bit of gamesmanship, but that was for my mind, almost borderline cheating from the sidelines from those teams. And it really got me. I don't know if you share this, but it got a bit farcical towards the end. Yep, it it completely did. I think this was the only time that I am not disappointed that I didn't get up and watch this game live, purely for the fact that I could sit on the the couch with my remote and every time there was a stoppage in play, I just fast forward it. Now, if if I was up at 6am to watch this live, there's no chance for that. I think what was really ironic towards the end of this game is that it was England that clearly had this game plan coming in that we're going to slow the ball down. Every time South Africa kicks it long to us in our 22, we'll call a mark, we'll take a few seconds and then we'll kick it out. Like every opportunity they had, they slowed the game down. And inevitably, South Africa got in front in the 77th minute and it was England that was scrambling for as many minutes as they could to try and convert and the the clock ran out. So it was ironic that they were slowing the game down so much in the in the beginning of the game. And when it came to the end, they were the ones that would have loved an extra maybe 30, 40 seconds to try and convert something. It does kind of lend some interesting questions into what the final might look like. So before we jump into that, are there any... I'll just quickly say two interesting stats. England had the slowest ruck speed of the tournament for their matches. So I thought that was interesting just when we're talking about the horrible speed of the game. And England also kicked away 93% of their possession. 93%. Um, I was chatting with a couple of mates in a WhatsApp chat and they were like, oh, should we watch the game this morning? And I was like, honestly, nah. Because they're part-time rugby fans, like they're, they're they're people that will kind of watch all sports, but unless it's a good game of rugby, they won't really enjoy it. And I was like, just don't bother. Watch the mini or watch watch the extended highlights or something like that, because you're just going to get absolutely bored from it. Um, Mitch, any final comments before we move in, and then Lockie straight after? Um, there's a fair bit to to discuss in this game, I think, and to unpack in it. The first one that jumps out to me is, and as you said, how slow England was in there with the their hands on the ball. I have never seen a caterpillar ruck prior to today that had five <laughs> players back from the ruck. Like that has to be cracked down on. That was ridiculous. Yes, they did everything legally. Their shoulders were on. They they did it all. But there was at least three rucks where the ball is sitting at the base of the ruck and then a cater- 
caterpillar forms mm. where Ben O'Keefe says, use it now. And then they start to pull it back and go through four different sets of legs. At one point, they even the, the scrum half even had to change sides twice to be able to get the ball to the back of the caterpillar ruck. And Ben O'Keefe had called use it. You're meant five, to have three or five, five seconds, seconds to use it. It was like 10. Yeah, and it was like 10 seconds before they actually got it to the back and kicked it. And I was like, come on, guys, let's let's pick this up. You just, this you just want even Sebeth to come through and pick the ball up at the back of the ruck like he did. I can't remember when he did that, but someone had lost their connection in that Caterpillar ruck, and so the ball was out. So he just ran through, picked it up, scored a try. Um, it, was, it was frustrating. It was frustrating. And I think on review, um, the refereeing team will take that as something that they need to be better at, which is increasing the pace of the game, which overall throughout this tournament has been pretty good, has been pretty good. So unfortunately, we just had it come up in a semi-final. Uh, Lucky, some other quick uh, other thoughts about this game? Absolutely. Uh, one off the top of the head is props to the bomb squad. This, mm. this South African bench saved that game and it would have been a masterclass tactically from England if it wasn't for the injection of um, that bench, that stacked bench, we saw Ox and Che, Arkes Diamond, Dion Faree, Quagga Smith all come on and they totally changed the course of not just the scrum battle, but how physical and confrontational the box were around the park. So we saw a really interesting scrum battle early, I thought, with Joe Marler and um, Dan Cole getting ascendancy, yeah. which was huge. And Jamie George as well, who I thought put in a really good shift and was communicating well with Ben O'Keefe. As soon as Marla and Cole went off, um, Sinclair and Genge, I thought, got really exposed there because they're both great ball runners. We know what Kyle Sinclair's done. We all remember him skittling Hooper, you know, this, um, midway through last year in that sort of big um, moment in the series. But they got roasted at scrum time. Ox and Shea, Vincent Koch. They destroyed them, and I was really skeptical seeing you know Evan Etzebeth come on after come off. Sorry, after forty five minutes, Sia Khaleesi came off early in the second half. I was thinking, what is Rassi doing? Um, but it paid off in spades. You know, um, Bongi on Manambi as well, going eighty minutes at hooker in a yep. World Cup semi final. That's a huge shift, and his line out throwing was rubbish, but his impact around the park and then at scrum time. Massive, so I've got to give it to those Bock forwards. And Franco Mostert also played a full 80. Um, and then you look at experience, right? You had Cobus Reinach and Manny LeBock were not the halves for those conditions, so they didn't feel sentimental about that. They went, right, half an hour, Manny, you're off. Hondre Pollard comes on and slowly starts turning the screws, kicks really well, ice in the veins for the last one. I mean, in the driving rain, 49 metres out, who else do you want kicking for your World Cup future? There's only one man in the whole tournament that you'd trust, and that's Andre Pollard, and he did it. I think it's concerning for South Africa how easy it was for England in the first 20 minutes just to hold them out and that how, I guess, dominant England was in that period, even though South Africa had the majority of the ball in, in their possession, that every time they got down into the 22... England kept them out and England forced a turnover. We, we in our preview last week coming into this, I pretty confidently said that I didn't think England would get close to South Africa in this game because I couldn't see them matching the physicality or the set piece. And I've got to take my hat off to them. England outshone South Africa for at least the, th the first 45 minutes. I think it was the 50th minute really when 
as the bomb squad came on and the the rotations were made that South Africa pushed England off. I think it was even the 50th minute South Africa pushed England off one of their own balls. I don't think I can remember the last time in an international test match I've seen a team push the opposition back off their own feed and then get it out the back of the scrum. It was incredible performance from them in that turnaround. But leading into this game, uh, there are some big questions around for South Africa and, and that maybe that will lead us into our preview coming up. But it was concerning that they just weren't effective in most of the areas that they had been so good at the rest of the tournament. Yep. And so that's a really, really big question. And I think, Lockie, we'll throw it to you for one last comment before we then move into the final chat. Yeah, I know we've talked a lot about the box and rightly so, they won it. Um, but really quickly, two, no, three, sorry, players stand out from England, um, yeah. aside from the starting front row that I mentioned. Owen Farrell, I hate the bloke, but that droppy is clutch from what, 45 metres out in the rain. That was the a angle. massive kick out of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's some that's some clutch stuff. You know, kicked all his goals. I thought he executed their game plan to a T, and he's unlucky because they almost pulled off something great off his boot. Two more in the pack. Had not heard of him before, but George Martin in number five was a beast. He played so well. He was out bocking the box, and he really gave it to Etzebeth throughout that whole game. It almost looked like he had a job, which was to try and shut down Big Borat. And he did. He did a fantastic job. So props to him. And Courtney Laws keeps getting better. He'd be yep. one of the form blindsides in the world at the moment. So power to them. Uh, interested to see how that bronze medal plays off, but also sucked in England. <laughs> and look, how lippy was Owen Farrell in this game? Though? Like, how good 10. was it to see Ben O'Keefe finally marching yes. 10? I was, I was calling for him to do that in the first... Uh, instance when they had that bit of scuffle and uh, Ben O'Keefe's dressed both captains. C has just gone, yep, I'll have a chat to the boys and walked off. And then Farrell's just stood there and kept going at him, kept going at him. And then he even said to him, Ben even said, like, I'm not talking to you about it anymore. You've got the penalty. And then he kept going even more. And I was like, you're the captain. Pull your head in. Yep. The call's made. It's done. Get out of it. And then the next instance it happens, he gives him, a, he walks him 10 for it. So Definitely a, a player who gets into the feel and rhythm of the game and he gets lets the emotions get the better of him. But when you're the captain like that, you really need to keep your head, I think, and, and show some respect to the to um, the referee, particularly as big a game as it is on the world stage. It honestly just lends credence to the thought that I just think Owen Farrell and Johnny Sexton are just dickheads. They might be amazing rugby players, and, and they are. They're really, really good rugby players. But... God, they are just the most lippy and I just think they'd be one of the people that'd be like, oh, he's good on your team once you get to know him. You know that like backhanded compliment of he's a bit of a dick, but he's on your team, so you kind of have to like him. Um, I just feel like Owen Farrell and Johnny Sexton. Like Dan Coles. Uh, not Dan Coles. Um... Dan Coles. Yeah, definitely. That's who you're thinking. You're thinking New Zealand hooker, yes? Who am I? Who, the, yeah, the Kiwi one. But yeah, 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 yeah. But... <laughs> Dan, what's the what's the English prop? Uh, oh, Dan Cole. That's Dan Cole. Dan Cole and Dane Coles. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, Dane Coles. It's definitely. close, right? I'm talking about the Kiwi one. 
Anyway, anyway, why don't we move into the final? And there is obviously going to be the third, fourth placed play, uh, placed play off as well. And that will be between England and Argentina Saturday morning in Sydney time with the final being played Sunday morning, 6am Sydney time between New Zealand and South Africa. So look, I don't think we need to give much airtime to Argentina versus England because honestly, nobody ever remembers who comes third. Um, so <laughs> is there anything, Mitch, you want to say? Anything, Lockie, you guys want to Unless say? Unless it's Australia. Yeah, but it's not, so who cares? <laughs> oh, go the Pumas. The bronze medal games are always fun, I think. I never remember who wins, but it does mean something. Um, unless you're the All Blacks, in which case it's an abject failure and you get shot when you get home. But <laughs> they're, they're usually really good games. People, your Teams loosen up a little, they throw the ball around. They're usually fairly high-scoring affairs. So I'm excited to see this one. I hope that England chance their arm and actually have a crack. But did Steve Borthwick coaching, who is just a, a thumb of a man. Um, so I assume that they'll play in the same manner they have all tournament and try and bore me to tears. So all aboard the Pumas bandwagon for bronze. He's hoping they can kick away. I think it's going to be 95%. really interesting Sorry, Mitch, for both of these games, who gets appointed referee. Now, yeah, who, whoever gets appointed referee. Now, now that England's in the bronze medal, playoff and it, it and not in the final i really hope that uh wayne barnes gets the final i think he's been one of our best referees in this tournament one of the um one of my bugbears from this weekend with the refereeing is just the inconsistency across both games now i know it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot because you've got to play the game that you're in and you've got to play how you play the game but there were some calls in both matches that were adjudicated completely differently and particularly at scrum time in the Argentina-New Zealand game, there was a few instances at scrum time where uh, Argentina collapsed. Or no, New Zealand collapsed the scrum, but Argentina were penalised because they apparently didn't hold the hit. Whereas in the South Africa game, nearly the exact same thing happens, but uh, South Africa or England got penalised because they collapsed. Now, that's a pretty different interpretation of the exact same thing happening. If a team... If a team collapses the scrum or like pancakes and one referee is saying that it's uh, the attacking team's fault because they're not holding the hit and the other team saying it's the team's fault because they collapsed, that's two completely different interpretations that have real repercussions whether how, or sets precedence how in the future the tournament's going to be played. Ben O'Keefe also in this final, there was a few times where the commentators were saying his interpretation of the breakdown was completely different to how the rest of the tournament had been played where there were times where the ball was sitting at the back and he allowed the Springboks to come around and pick the ball up, uh, even though technically it hadn't been out or he allowed them to have a second crack at the breakdown where previously he would have called that as hands in the ruck or the ruck's over at that point. So, yeah, it, it will be interesting and make sure we get consistency leading into this final because we don't want to be sitting here in a week's time in a game that's no doubt going to be an absolute belter and one for the ages but talking about how South Africa won on a technicality or New Zealand won because they weren't able to get comparative uh, get dom or South Africa wasn't allowed to get dominance at the set piece. It'll be an interesting one with Wayne Barnes. Hope we're, we're assuming it's going to be Wayne Barnes, by the way, dear listeners. Uh, I, I hope it is because the games that he referees are almost always uh, fluid and attacking and um, there's much more opportunity to build phase play under him than maybe under some of the other referees. And I think if we actually get down into the match itself and what it might well look like, 
New Zealand have done incredibly well with a fast up-tempo game. Um, They have played probably a lot tighter this tournament than what we might have seen in them over the last couple of years. And in some ways that will suit South Africa. But an area that I'm pretty concerned about for New Zealand on their behalf is the kicking accuracy of Richie Mawanga versus Andre Pollard if he does start. Now, Mawanga only kicked 50% in the match against Argentina. So really, really poor. Admittedly, a lot of them were pretty hard. They were out wide, lots of winger tries and the like. Um, But still 50% going into a World Cup final isn't good. Lockie, what are some of your thoughts on areas of strengths or weaknesses for New Zealand or South Africa? I love the backbone matchup so Mm. far. I'm not sure whose strength it is but both have been such key components of the campaign so far. Like you've got two two good mates and two of the best players in the world on the back row in Sia Khaleesi and Adi Savaya going up against each other. That's a great storyline in of itself. But, um, you know, people like you know, your Peter Steph Detroit, who's just your carry monster. How does he match up against a bigger game breaker like Shannon Frizzell, um, mm-hmm. your know, Sam Kane? You know, do we put a fetcher on him? Is Quagga Smith injected to match him at the breakdown or do the box just go um, Vermeulen and throw a mammoth man in there? You know, there's so many different iterations in that back row, so I'm really keen for that. But I don't think it gets uh, any bigger for South Africa in light of the semifinal than the line-out. So obviously yep. really bad conditions yep. um, in this recent game, um, the more recent game uh, between England and the box. But... Bongi Omanami was just not hitting his lineouts. Um, England, especially Mara Tojo, was picking them off. And when you've got a defensive lineout led by Sam Whitelock, plus Scott Barrett and Brody Retallick coming off the bench at this stage, that is probably the tightest set piece going around. So I'm really concerned um, for South Africa about their offensive lineout. And especially when it's in their own 22. They're trying to clear their line and you've got big guzzler coming up and spoiling ball, you know, with 20 minutes to go. I think that's a real problem area for um, for the box. But like you said, um, in general, general kicking in and off the tee as well, we're seeing a lot of dinky kicks from the All Blacks. They're putting some flashy crossfield stuff, but kicking at 50% in the semifinal, I don't think that's up to scratch. And I'm not backing Richie Moanga to sink one with two minutes to go from 50 out in the driving rain. So however that is worked out over the next few weeks, whoever kicks their goals wins the finals. That's how it's always been in every World Cup final going back, whether you had a Matt Burke, a Andre Pollard, a Dan Carter in 2015, or your Stephen Donald popping up and, you know, being the fourth choice to nail one. You need your goal kickers operating at 100%. And in fact, I can't remember a game where a goal kicker has kicked less than 80 in a final, and they've won. The exception is Piri Weipu in 2011, who had an absolute shocker, but they still got through. So if Moanga's not kicking, you know, 75 80% in the final, Pollard is just going to eat him alive. Yeah, and one point I want to jump on before, Mitch, I throw it over to you for your thoughts on the game, is um we've seen that in the past New Zealand can come undone with a high bomb-kicking game from the opposition. Um, Will Jordan has had a couple of times where he hasn't judged 
high ball particularly well and has been caught out taking out the opposition player, undercutting their legs. Um, Mark Talea isn't the greatest under the high ball either. And so you just know that there are going to be a lot of bombs and a lot of box kicks put up at training this week to make sure that New Zealand teams uh, players are preparing and they're making sure that the retreating players are providing that shield. So it might even be best for South Africa if they cause a little bit of chaos and let the high balls that they put in maybe not go as deep for New Zealand. And so there's lots of bodies in and around the ball and it's really, really messy. I wonder if the um, messiness of the kicking game will be something that lends uh South Africa a bit of an edge. Mitch, your thoughts? It's interesting to look at this game because if we go back to that warm-up test right before the World Cup played at Twickenham, that was this game, right? That was New Zealand-South Africa. And South Africa was dominant, as you said, Ando, in that game because they found out, really, New Zealand's tactical ineptability under the high ball. What this last semi-final, England and South Africa, has shown was that when the, the, the games held tight and England held it in tight and put applied a lot of pressure to South Africa, they crumbled and they weren't able to get until the bomb squad came on and they made those changes that, that um, shifted the momentum back in their favour. Everything England was doing was putting South Africa under pressure and they weren't able to, um, they just weren't able to convert their opportunities, particularly early on in that game. What New Zealand has done so well in this tournament is keep the, the ball moving, keep the game free-flowing, keep the, the ball tempo upbeat. I wonder if leading into this game, if they start to realise that they need to take a similar approach to what England did this week and if they keep it in tight, if they put the, um, the pressure onto South Africa, they can apply more uh, dominance in that area. It, it's not something that... We have typically seen a lot of from New Zealand this year, particularly uh, in these last few games. They haven't really been tested in that area either. Uh, so it's, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what um, what combinations they go with, what 23 they pick, and then what style of play they do pick. Lockie, over to you, my friend. You got a few stats for us. Yeah, I just dug up a couple before and it's. I'm really keen to unpack what Mitch was talking about, about how the lineups look and particularly what kind of split the teams run with. We saw the box roll out their 7-1 in that um, first, in that sort of like the last warm-up test where they won 35-7. I doubt we'll see that again. But I just wanted to quickly look back before this final on the this past World Cup cycle that we've seen between New Zealand and South Africa. So since they met in 2019 in uh, the pool, which was uh, the game won by New Zealand before the Saffirs went on to um, take Bill back to Joburg, um, they've played six times. They've won three apiece, and the average score has been so tight. It's been 25 to South Africa, um, beats 20 to New Zealand. So it's been relatively high scoring, more than I thought it would be actually, um, which is really cool to see. So... When we start heading into prediction times, I think we're getting a pretty good read of what we might see from this past World Cup cycle, and it might even give the box just a slight edge. Well, let's stay with that then, Lockie. Who are you calling is going to be on Saturday morning, Sunday morning, Australian time, lifting the trophy in this final match? Do you think it's going to be South Africa or New Zealand? Well, if I roll with my stats average, then South Africa win by five. It's 25 points to 20. <laughs> All right, what? let's roll with that. 
I think, uh, yeah, I'll stick with it. I feel like fatigue might play a factor given the box have one less day to rest and had a much harder um, semi-final. But then I remembered they barely played any footy because the medics were on all the time. So I'm going to stick with I'm going to stick with the stats, man. I'm going to say box win twenty five twenty. All right, Mitch. I think it'll be interesting to see what twenty three Rassi and Jacques go with for the spring box this week. One point, actually, before I get into my prediction that we didn't bring up earlier, but how interesting was it to see every time in this game, particularly uh, outside the last probably ten minutes, but every time the camera showed the South African press box, uh, coaching box. Who was everyone talking to? It wasn't Jackson. Jacques Ninebar. Ninebar. Yeah. It was Rassi Erasmus. He was clearly coaching the but team. He's always been uh, there was. He's the director of he's, rugby. He's, like, come on. Well, who, are we, who are we kidding? How much of an ego would that, how much of a hit to your ego would that be uh, for the coach that you're sitting there in a World Cup semi final? Career, your career's on the line, the game's on the line, and everyone's taking directions from the director of rugby. That would really, really suck. But um, back to this game, I think what will be interesting to see is if there was clearly a, a shift in momentum when the bomb squad came on and a lot of the set piece dominance came from the players that, that came and start and finished the game for South Africa. I don't think they can allow a team like New Zealand to get ascendancy for the 50 minutes or 40 minutes or however long um, until they make those those changes. Uh, for the first half because they could potentially get too far ahead for South Africa to claw that back. Unlike England, New Zealand can score a lot of points if they get ahead of you on the scoreboard. But they can, they're capable, sorry, of scoring a lot of points. South Africa, therefore, if they can start some of those guys that came off the bench, uh, I think they might be able to um, balance the set, the set piece a little bit better against New Zealand. One thing about New Zealand, though, is they are they they have experience at this level as do south africa and i don't think the like you could always say like a team like england for example if they made the final you might be saying well their um fear of losing the final might prohibit them from particularly if the game's tight prohibit them and sort of cripple them towards the end of the game new zealand definitely won't do that they play big minutes they're comfortable in these types of circumstances under this pressure both of these teams are uh, if New Zealand throw the ball around, I think that has the potential to damage South Africa, who want to keep it tight, who want to keep the ball moving uh, and in the air. But geez, my heart says that South Africa can um, can dominate. If they play a similar game to what they did in Twickenham earlier this year, I think that they can potentially nullify some of what New Zealand has brought so far this tournament. So I'm going to stick with South Africa. It won't be much by much more than a score, so maybe five points. Well, I'm going to buck the trend and I'm going to pick New Zealand. Um, I'm going to say it's going to be New Zealand by eight, but that is that is despite my fears I have about the bench front row for New Zealand. So I'm not sold on Fletcher, New, uh, Fletcher Newell, um, Takiyahu, and Tanaiti Williams as well, just at this level. Excellent Super Rugby players have been have been serviceable off the bench, but we saw against England how important it is to have a stable set piece. Um, sorry, 
we saw for South Africa how important it was to have a stable set piece and they were just so, so impressive. I'm not sure on that area of the game, but New Zealand would be far more efficient throughout the whole competition. A set piece in general has been stronger and they are just executing their opportunities so brilliantly. And look, you spoke earlier to the um, size mismatch in the wing positions in the back three. That'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Bigger is not always better, so I keep telling everybody. And it'll be really fascinating to see how that tactical battle comes into play there. So I think from here, we've got two people picking South Africa. I'm picking New Zealand. Let's see how it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to the pod. Make sure you get in touch and tell us who you are going to be tipping. But from here, we're going to make a move and we'll take a quick break before we then jump into the WXV, the women's competition, which is kicked off this weekend. Let's have a break. The first weekend of the WXV competition occurred this weekend. I was going to say WXV won, but all three competitions kicked off across this weekend. Um, the WXV won happening in New Zealand and England versus Australia was the match that our Wallaroos played. And unfortunately, they went down to the top ranked team in the world, 42-7. to It was a pretty tough game. Pretty tough game in terms of the result. There were some positive elements and positive moments, but Lockie, a tough day out for our girls. Yeah, it was. They tried hard. I was really lucky to uh, be covering that one live, and I thought the second half showing was excellent. So they went in with a 28-0 hill to climb at halftime, which was tough. Um, Conceded two tries late in the piece after Annabelle Cody's first yellow card, Um, but after Cody got her second and the Wallaroos were down to 14 women, they defended so well. Something, mm-hmm. I think, sort of sparked in them. And the injection of Ash Masters, Atasi Lafai off the bench, um, Desiree Miller also coming on for yep. debut, had a really big impact on the wing, got a couple of breakdown steals, had a good shift. Um, and then uh, Adiana Talakai had a massive shift as well coming off the bench. So a, a couple of positives from our own bomb squad uh, on the Wallaroos frontier. But we just left the left it too late, unfortunately. The Red Roses set piece, um, particularly their line out and mall. Scrum was a bit more even, but line out and mall, I think we coughed up nine line outs across the game. Yeah. It was a real Achilles heel for us. And uh, that English pack is too good. Um, we mentioned before the record, Hannah Bonneman and Maud Muir are massive, powerful women. And the first try, Hannah Bonneman rolling over the top of M Chancellor. No mean feat. M Chancellor, one of the best defenders in the Warriors, and got skittled by Big Hannah Bonneman. So proper skittled. And go back and watch it. It was a cracking run. Sorry. Sorry, M. Um, but impressive <laughs> stuff from that big English pack. So that's that's where they won it. Marley Packer in seven is a superstar of the game. Got a couple of tries for her and had a real skipper's knock. Um, so they'll take a lot out of that second half, I think, um, Mitch. But... What did you see in that one that can give us a bit of light? Yeah, look, I think we're going to continue to have to talk about these types of results with the way the Wallaroos and the, the preparation that they've been given. Unfortunately, we've we've spoken about it for years now on this podcast that the platform that and the opportunities that the women get in our sport just isn't enough at the moment. There's not enough preparation, particularly leading to tournaments like this. 
the girls did so well last year in the World Cup that to get to the quarterfinals like they did, um, they're probably overachieved in some elements there. Then to go in and to qualify to WXV1 was a massive achievement for them this year. But the games we're starting to see now, it's just a different level. It's another step up. And the girls, unfortunately, at this point, just don't quite have uh, the skill set and the fitness to match full-time professionals. Uh, as good as we were in the last sort of 25 minutes and we did defend really well, England never looked troubled by us realistically. And for the first, you know, 55 minutes of this game, it was pretty much one-way traffic by England. Yeah, completely agree. And what you've spoken to there is just a bit of the conditioning. In I know this is a really simple statement, but it matters. The English pack were just bigger than our pack. It's really, really simple. But you look at Hannah Bottom and just as an excellent example. She's freaking huge. She's massive. And her running at pace off the back of that um, line-out move where she uh, skittled M. Chancellor was just we weren't able to stop her and we were not going to be able to stop her. You look across their back line, their back row, sorry, and there's just some absolute mountains of women there that have had the benefit of years of high-level conditioning, which, I mean, our players weren't even paid a semi-living wage until earlier this year. So they're not competing on comparable playing fields. We've mentioned this before. And so people will go, hey, guys, they, they, they lost 42 to 7. And we go, yeah, we know. We know. But you've got to look for the positives because the playing field is not even. And so the positives for me is that we've also mm. got three new uh, new Walroos. We have Desiree Miller, Brianna Hoy, and um, number 21, Sarah Doherty, was the uh, third um, debutante as well. So congratulations to all three of those. Personally, uh, I would love to see Ash Masters back into the starting lineup. Um, I think that the physicality and energy shield she brings will be really, really beneficial within the first half so the girls aren't chasing a larger margin and will also have an enforced change with the red card to Annabelle Cody for the two yellows, which honestly were just... Um, they were bad mistakes. They were bad mistakes. Nothing intentionally foul within them, but just just poor reads defensively for her to be too upright in those tackles. So we may even see pod favourite Serena Gama come in at lock because she's pretty good operating there um, within the line out. So we'll see how that shuffle goes. But the Wallaroos are next up. I think just on the yep. um, the officiating for this game, before we move into looking forward, across this tournament, what has been... <laughs> Uh, and it's um, it was almost funny watching this game to some degree that for the past year through Super Rugby Pacific and now in the World Cup and through the Rugby Champs, we've got so used to the off-field review system that when it isn't in place and in for, for WXV1 or for all of the women's tournaments at the moment, they don't have the off-field review. So we're giving straight cards given out, a straight yellow or a straight red. We're not reviewing it. We're not sending it off. It, it was funny to see that uh, that those things were given because I think I even made a comment on our Discord channel that I can't remember the last outright red card or outright yellow card I've seen in a year and a half. Yep. Um, so yeah, yep. it was just interesting that uh, we were we were back to that um, that level in this tournament. I can't remember the ref's name for the uh, Wallaroos game, but it was Holly Davidson that was doing a France New Zealand match. 
Um, and the refereeing quality across both those games that I watched, we also had Canada versus Wales, but I didn't see that game, um, was just impressive, seriously impressive. Clarity of communication, not getting phased when there's a high emotions within the moment. I know that at one point, um, M. Robertson gave one of the English players a bit of a head rub after they'd won a penalty and, and a bit of yeah. argy-bargy came in. And the English captain was trying to make something more of it. And the ref was just like, no, it's just just a bit of bit of a rub. I've spoken to him. Let's keep playing. Let's keep going. Calm down, everybody. It's fine. And I just really like that because sometimes like you, you see moments within a men's game where it's almost over-officiated and the referee had it fully mm. under control and f- the players listened and, and just did what they said. I, I loved it. I thought the officiating was great across both games. And to that point too, I think they handled both yellow cards in, yep. in the Australia game really, really well. And it was it was a nice, refreshing take on it that they brought in an element of common sense, which we don't often see in the in the men's game. Be and spoken about was she was like, well, it's actually a passive hit. She hasn't led with a lot of force. She's ridden the hit. Yes, she's high, so we're at that level. There is contact, but there wasn't intention, or well, maybe not intention. I don't think they use that word, but yeah, it was a passive hit. So she kind of rode through. Mm where in the men's game, that's not always considered. Probably a red card the, in the men's. Where the, the the hit and the force is being directed. Yeah, so they kind of talk themselves up into it, whereas in this instance, they actually talk themselves down, yep. which I thought was a really refreshing take on officiating. Yep. But we've got um, the Wallaroos next game coming up. Ando, why don't you... Um, Lockie was going to jump in with something before then. Oh, just really quickly. I We may have highlighted it um, in our preview last week, but really, really exciting to see a Tarsi Lafay back playing rugby again. She had a shocking ankle injury um, during training at last year's World Cup and didn't get the chance to play out that, that quarterfinal after having a big breakout season um, down at New South Wales. She was excellent off the bench. She carried really strongly up the guts. Looks like she's got full use of that ankle and a really exciting career ahead. So great to have her back in the fold. Completely agree. Great shout there, mate. And so moving into the next game, for Australia is France versus Australia. It's going to be on Saturday the 28th, so this coming Saturday at 5pm Sydney time. Now, we quickly should just touch on the French-New Zealand game, the France-New Zealand game, where France were able to win 18-17 to against the World Cup champions, New Zealand. Now, this was in some ways a surprise insofar as the two tries that the French were able to score were both against the run of the play. Um, a large part of this game, the New Zealand pack and New Zealand players had um, ascendancy. Rubes Tui is just incredible. One of the most, probably the most exciting female rugby player in the world, in my mind, in the 15s game. Um, Charlotte Kaslik would probably, or Maddie Levi would be competing for it in the sevens. Um, and it's just amazing to see what she can do with the ball. But Lockie, I'll throw it over to you. I mean, were you surprised by this outcome considering what happened at the Rugby World Cup? Not really. I mean, I thought France should have been in that World Cup final last year. They had a kick to win it late in that semi-final from dead in front and shanked it. So it was a a really tough thing for France to have to um, bow out of that. And eventually they took bronze pretty comfortably against Canada uh, last year. But I thought they probably deserved to be in that World Cup final and 
now it's a fairy tale, bit of cult status in New Zealand that the Black Ferns go on and win that World Cup, you know, with the final um, final line-out steal against England. But this French team is seriously good. And the two long-range tries were, weren't coming off the fact that they're really against the run of play. It was excellent defensive pressure. The French um, women laid on more than 200 tackles uh, at Sky Stadium. They tackled their hearts out. And they're really opportunistic work from Emily Bulliard and Cyril Banet. And they've got mm. gas. So they get the error, but then they convert. And that's something that you usually see from a New Zealand side. How many times have we seen Ruby Tui or Portia Woodman Whitcliffe or Renee Holmes running away against the Wallaroos or against another team equally good? You know, it's nice to see it reverse, and that only comes off the back of great defensive pressure. So I've got to give it to France. They played an excellent game. Completely, completely agree. The other result from the first round of the women's uh, WXV one was Canada versus Wales, Canada 42, Wales 22. So we have, like I mentioned, France versus, New- France versus Australia this coming Saturday. And then the following Friday night will be the third and final match for the Wallaroos going up against Wales again at 5 p.m. Sydney time. So make sure you get amongst it, get behind the girls, cheer them on and follow them on all social media and make your support as loud and proud as you can possibly be. But Mitch and Lockie, it is been an absolute pleasure being here with you we've got to talk through a lot of rugby absolutely loved it and we'll have our final episode of the rugby world cup coming out next week but i do need to quickly say there will be a special midweek pod okay so i'm going to be having a chat with finn morton of espn he has been over for the last two and a half months covering the rugby world cup and so we're just going to have a talk about what it's like to be a journalist at the rugby world cup um all the kind of glamour and the great opportunities you get to go to the french riverina and drink amazing wine and cheese but also the challenges of being away for that long and the various storylines that he has been able to he's been rugby pass isn't uh, he? rugby pass sorry not espn rugby pass thank you um, and all the different storylines yeah. that he has been able to um, experience and come across over at the um, Rugby World Cup in France. So keep your ears peeled for that. We'll either be recording Tuesday or Wednesday night. So thank you so much, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and you'll hear from me midweek and the rest of the team later next week after the final. Thank you so much. Have a great time. Bye.